Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. In downtown Dallas, President Kennedy was shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She cried, oh no. The motorcade sped on. Hello and welcome to 10 American Elections, the show where we look at 10 pivotal races to become the President of the United States of America. I'm Royfield Brown, your host, and I'm joined by my colleague Adam Vanami and historian and author David Petrusha. Before I start, I'd like to remind you that 10 American Presidents and 10 American Elections are part of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, our featured podcast is Tom Daly's excellent American biography. As a lover of American history, I highly recommend that you go over and listen to it on Acast or iTunes today. Now, on with the show. The year is 1964. Lyndon Baines Johnson is the President of the United States after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November 1963 in Dallas, Texas. America is getting used to the new reality of a world ready for nuclear war at a moment's notice after the narrowly avoided Cuban Missile Crisis almost pushed the world to the brink. John F. Kennedy's social reforms are front and center in America's domestic agenda, and key civil rights legislation of 1964 has been passed by Congress effectively ending segregation. The British invasion by the Beatles has occurred, 
The Beatles! The counterculture is pushing back against the straight-laced, blue-cut America. The space race is on. T-minus 25 seconds. And Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard have both orbited the planet for the Soviet Union and the United States, respectively. And the U.S. is trying to answer John F. Kennedy's call to get to the moon by the end of the 60s. The world politic is defined by the struggle between communism and capitalism. And Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, has long since threatened to bury America. The Vietnam War is poised to escalate in earnest in Southeast Asia after the Gulf of Tonkin is in. And the Soviet Union and the United States are building missiles at an alarming rate. The UN has intervened in one proxy war between capitalism and communism in Korea without Soviet input. But the existence of both the United States and the Soviet Union and the UN now paralyzes its ability to deal with anything but unrelated issues to the struggles between the two. The Republican Party is reeling after the narrow and controversial loss of Richard Nixon to John F. Kennedy in 1960, and in a process of trying to pivot the direction of the party in a way that will make it more relevant to voters around the nation. My name is Adam Benami. I am an IT professional a married proud father of two and a shameless history junkie. And uh, David, um, I know obviously the listeners kind of know you from the two FDR shows, but if anybody's just tuning into 10 America Collections for the first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is David Petrusha. I've done a series of books on presidential elections, 1920, 1960, 1948, and 1932. So today we're looking at the presidential race of 1964. David, as our resident expert, I suppose that presidential race really started in Dallas in 63. How did the assassination of Kennedy affect the race on both the Republican and Democratic side? As always, democracy finds its strength in the continuity of the presidency. Lyndon B. Johnson becomes the 36th president of the United States just 99 minutes after his predecessor's life had ebbed away. The widow, with stamina born of courage, stands bravely by the new president's side. Mr. Johnson accompanies the martyred president's body back to the Capitol, a Capitol still paralyzed by shock. Sad tasks are ahead. It is arranged that the president's body will first lie in repose at the White House. Then it will be moved to the rotunda of the Capitol, it, it changes everything, obviously. It certainly changes the Democratic candidate. Uh, there is a interregnum, a period of mourning after the Kennedy assassination. So where we've had in the last few ele presidential elections where things get up and running several years in advance, uh, things really don't start to get up and running until January 1964. And the, the cast of characters is changed by adding Lyndon Johnson, subtracting John Kennedy. And on the Republican side, it's essentially at that point between Nelson Rockefeller and Barry Goldwater. So what was, what was Lyndon B. Johnson standing um, in the average American's kind of eye prior to the Kennedy's assassination? Was he viewed as a competent politician, a good vice president? He's a hell of a, a politician. That is not necessarily a compliment. Among the people in Washington, the rumors are flying fast and furious that he may be dumped from the ticket in 1964. There are a couple of scandals. Uh, 
which involves some folks that Lyndon Johnson knows, the uh, Wheeler dealer in Texas dealing in agricultural commodities and federal programs and bank loans, a fellow named Billy Saul Estes. He's already been convicted. And there's another fellow under the gun who was called Little Lyndon in Washington, a guy named Bobby Baker, who was secretary to the Senate. And uh, he's accused of influence peddling and has had to resign. And because of those scandals, the rumors are flying that Lyndon Johnson, who has uh, not exactly ingratiated himself to the Kennedys, particularly Bobby Kennedy, could be dumped. The relationship between him and Jack Kennedy is not that bad. Jack Kennedy has taken care and deal with Lyndon with respect. That same cannot be said about his brother, Bobby. So, David, you've kind of expertly described um, Lyndon B. Johnson's relationship to the Kennedys. But I suppose the 1964 election is really important because of what happens in the Republican Party. So can you give us somewhat of an, an overview of the Republican Party going into that year? Who are the runners and riders? Barry Goldwater on the right, Nelson Rockefeller on the left. There are a number of other folks on the left or the middle, however you wish to define it, who are of some significance. There's Henry Cabot Lodge, who is ambassador to Vietnam. He had been a Republican senator, defeated in 1952 by Jack Kennedy, on the Republican ticket as vice presidential candidate in 1960. William Scranton, who had just been elected governor of Pennsylvania, one of these blue blood types. He had served two terms in in Congress as what he described himself as a Kennedy Republican, which will tell you where he stood uh, ideologically, and a newly elected governor of Michigan named George, not Mitt, Romney. I suppose we should go back very slightly. And, And there is a fellow who might have run again, But he runs into a tremendous roadblock in 1962, i.e. losing the race for governor of California, and that's Richard Nixon, and he says you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe, fighting man from head to toe, on the land, on the sea, in the air. G.I. Joe, attack! Boom, boom! G.I. Joe, Terrific equipment to have a battle with. When you get G.I. Joe and the authentic G.I. Joe equipment, you'll have the greatest realism, the greatest fun you ever had in playing soldier. Box after box of authentic uniforms. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruleville, Mississippi. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had 
taken this test and started Bicerouville, we was held up by the city police where the bus driver was charged with driving a bus the wrong color. I think we had an incident provoked here by the people who have been in our community trying to stir up some uh, just agitating against, uh, well, for a general integration thing, a movement that uh, is uh, our local people have nothing to do with and don't want any part of. And I feel like the outsiders that came in here to, to talk our people into this thing did. So just before we kind of really get into the 1964 election, um, could you kind of describe the kind of ideological um, kind of spectrum for us with American politics? Maybe it preceded, you know, the 60s, maybe in the 50s, because is that where we start to have uh, the, the two main American parties defined as we kind of understand them today you know what kind of happens with with american politics kind of post fdr and the new deal up till civil rights in the 60s in terms of really understanding what is right and left in american politics in 1948 and 1952 we see things start to shake loose from their traditional moorings of the alignments of the parties in 1948 where the solid south breaks apart, it doesn't go Republican, but it goes for Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats. And then in 1952-56, you see Richard Dixon's running mate, Dwight Eisenhower, start to break into the Solid South, although a different part of it. He's more of the Upper South and not that Dixiecrat South. Now, in 1952, in the Republican Party, there is a real grudge match emerging. And while one would never call Dwight Eisenhower and Robert Taft firebrands, they get into a down-to-the-wire battle for the nomination. The Taft people think that it is stolen from them. And in that year, there's an interesting speech at the Republican National Convention by the great Everett McKinley Dirksen, senator from Illinois, where he excoriates the eastern seaboard, moderate uh, Wall Street, New York-dominated Republicans, the Dewey Republicans, saying, we will not go down that road again. You have led us down to defeat twice. And the theory emerges that me to Republicanism is not the path to the White House for the Republican Party. And that's something that Barry Goldwater is going to follow up big time in 1964. All right, so we've got our little bit of background. Take us, David, into 1964, actually the year itself. Uh, what was the first kind of significant thing to happen uh, for the runners and the riders in the Republican race? The first thing that happens just about every year up until the institution of the Iowa caucus is the New Hampshire primary. That's the first in the nation. And what's going to happen there is a real surprise. The election campaigns in full swing in New Hampshire. Bellwether state of the nation that goes to the polls on March 10th. The following specially recorded program is sponsored by the Goldwater for President Committee. It brings you Barry Goldwater's campaign in New Hampshire. 
here he speaks out on the issues as he sees them. I've never seen so many frustrated people as we have around Washington. <laughs> They're frustrated mostly because they haven't any faith in the American system. They've lost confidence in the Constitution. They've lost confidence in the fact that a strong nation has to be strong, has to show its strength, and has to let its enemies know what they're going to do. The question in my mind is how can you prevent war with policies that are making communist countries content with communism or foreign aid policies that are making them even more content? You cannot stop a man who has vowed to bury you by sending him shovels, by feeding and clothing his friends, while denying your friends the means to help protect you. Now, I firmly believe that the only way to secure the peace without war is to pile on the economic pressures that will disrupt the enemy. The front runners are Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller. Goldwater's had been endorsed by the Manchester Union leader, which is edited by William Loeb, uh, a really hardcore conservative kind of guy. He excoriates Nelson Rockefeller for a problem he has. And the problem uh, with Rockefeller is not only that he's a liberal Republican, it's that he's a divorced liberal Republican. And his wife is even, his second wife is even more recently divorced. And that is perceived to be a scandal at that time. And that will hurt Rockefeller when Goldwater goes into New Hampshire. He makes some comments about the Cold War and about Social Security, which are going to hurt him a great deal, which leaves the door open for a draft Henry Cabot Lodge movement. Four people come up from Massachusetts. They open a uh, little office for volunteers to write in, to write in. He is not even on the ballot, Henry Cabot Lodge. And that movement, now we talk about money in politics. Money in politics often doesn't develop or deliver votes in politics. Henry Cabot Lodge wins that right in and upsets just about everyone's apple cart. A heavy snowfall on primary day in New Hampshire is an omen of things to come. The presidential hopes of Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller snowed under by a write-in vote for Henry Cabot Lodge, the man who did no campaigning and was half a world away. Despite the weather, the turnout was heavy. 100,000 were expected to vote, substantially more than 80,000 cast their ballots, and 35% wrote in a name, Henry Cabot Lodge. From the capital of the Granite State to the smallest hamlet on the Canadian border, the people seem to have made up their minds. Mr. Lodge's supporters had a campaign headquarters, but their efforts on behalf of their candidate were put in the shade by the whirlwind tours of Goldwater and Rockefeller. Meanwhile, Ambassador Lodge was at his post in South Vietnam as the ballots were counted. A projection of the early count showed the trend. It was a Lodge victory all the way. With the victor far from the scene of his triumph, his son George faced a barrage of questions from reporters. He said that he felt his father would remain at his post for the time being. The ambassador was at work in South Vietnam when he got the word, touring the front with Defense Secretary McNamara. As a Foreign Service officer, he could not discuss politics. 
But the man who emerged into national prominence as our ambassador to the United Nations may have ended the chances of Goldwater and Rockefeller. Minister Malcolm, you have suggested that there are all kinds of movements in Harlem growing that you and I don't know about? Oh, yes. Uh, frustration itself has been, has been sufficient, all that was necessary to make Negroes realize the, the importance of banding together. And Negroes are banding together. Banding together in what kind of movements? Uh, different kinds of movements, all kinds of movements. And, and they remain almost invisible. They remain almost unknown. But yet they are there. When I say invisible, I mean invisible in the sense that their existence is unknown. Things are dark and dismal at Yankee Stadium with floodlights trying to pierce the fog as the Giants meet the Cleveland Browns. The New Yorkers look good early in the game behind quarterback Y.A. Tittle, who moves the ball within striking distance. Let me just kind of understand something, David. So I'm presuming, and I, I think I'm presuming wrong, that every state in the Union is either going to have a caucus or a primary in 1964. Would that be the case? Well, they're going to decide on delegates. Uh-huh. They're probably less than half are having primaries. Some of those primaries are going to involve favorite sons, so that in Ohio, the governor is Jim Rhodes, is going to win that primary. When with Bill Scranton wins the Pennsylvania primary, it is essentially as the favorite son. He is not in the race at that point. The person who gets the most popular votes in the primary that year is, drumroll please, Edmund Pat Brown, governor of California. Who? <laughs> yeah, who? He's not even really running for president, but uh, uh, there are a lot of favorite son candidates even in the Democratic primary process. And they, they are just sort of placeholders. And it is not unusual for someone from California as a favorite son candidate back in those days to be the, the popular vote champion of the election season. I know this makes no sense to today's ears, but that's the way it was. So is it suffice to say that the uh, the party establishment, whether it's the, on the Democratic or the Republican side, didn't wield the amount of power that they do now in terms of basically saying you cannot run or we're going to quietly endorse you to run? So is it much more of a free-for-all? No, it's not really a free-for-all because, you know, half those states are going on in, in the, uh, not so much the back rooms, but in these party conventions. Mm -hmm. To get back to favorite sons running, uh, and it, it would be very easy to skip over this, there's somebody who come, runs very, very well in the Democratic primaries that year, and his name is George Wallace. There are millions like you and I throughout this country. There are more today of us than there are of them. The others are more vociferous, and they're loud, and they make more noise. But they are more good people than they are these little pinkos that run around that don't do a thing in the world but talk about human life. Wallace is right, and he receives like 30% in Indiana, uh, a slightly higher amount in Wisconsin, 
and he takes 47% in the Maryland primary. In all of those, he's not facing, facing Lyndon Johnson directly. Not directly, he's facing those favorite Sun guys. But nonetheless, when he does that, that's a bit of a shocker. But, you know, LBJ is certainly going to weather that storm very easily to the nomination. But surely the Democratic races are just kind of coronations for, for Johnson at this Ab- point. Absolutely, absolutely. Johnson has it totally nailed down. So why would somebody like Wallace be running? Uh, his slogan was send them a message, okay? And his idea was to send the Democratic Party uh, a message that not only was the resistance to integration and the civil rights program centered in the South, but also in the North as well. And that was a bit of a shocker. And it would lead to his third party candidacy in 1968. And then again in 1972, when his candidacy is is cut short by the attempted assassination and where he is left uh, wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. And, and I think I think to to that point, that kind of under underlines a, uh, a a key part of this election was the white southerner traditional Dixiecrats that that Goldwater shaped his election around. And I guess Wallace was really catering to that as well. Wallace is certainly catering to it. He's the heir to it. At one point, Wallace suggests to Goldwater that he could be his his vice presidential running mate. And Goldwater reacts almost with horror to that. Um, Goldwater is going to vote against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, one of six Republican senators to do that. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law, and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. The Negro won his freedom then. He wins his dignity now. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. We must not approach the observance and enforcement of this law in a vengeful spirit. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions, divisions which have lasted all too long. Its purpose is national, not regional. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. So, tonight I urge every public official, every religious leader, every business and professional man, every working man, every housewife, I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people and to bring peace to our land. 
There's warm applause from members of both parties as the president sets to work. It is work. He uses nearly a hundred pens to affix his signature and date. Souvenirs go to Republican leader Everett Dirksen and Democratic whip Hubert Humphrey. There's an imbalance between party line votes in the Senate and the House on that 64 Civil Rights Act. The, the greater percentage is Republican votes, which are which are thrown into the uh, fray for that in favor of the Civil Rights Act. And that's, of course, because of the uh, preponderance of Southern Democrats in the, in the Democratic caucuses, uh, conferences in both houses that year. Goldwater's record on civil rights up to that point uh, would be considered in today's parlance quite liberal. He integrates the Arizona National Guard even before Harry Truman uh, integrates the armed services in the 1940s. The Goldwater Department Store is integrated very early on. He's an early backer of the Arizona Phoenix NAACP and the Urban League, and he's voted for the two civil rights acts of the 1950s, but he draws back on constitutional grounds uh, of voting for that Civil Rights Act of 1964, whereas Lyndon Johnson had been one of the roadblocks to civil rights legislation in the 50s. You can see in uh, uh, in the newsreels and the documentary films where Goldwater really is excoriating in almost a private conversation, like uh, or on the street, uh, Lyndon Johnson's position on those civil on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, just calling him an outright phony on the issue. Are you concerned, perhaps, about the Democrats taking advantage of this? After Lyndon Johnson, the biggest faker in the United States, having opposed the Civil Rights Act. For all the years of his life, this is the phoniest individual that ever came around. Did you get that? Yeah, I mean, one thing I found really interesting was the fact that he had a really good understanding of what his chances were but when he ran for president. I mean, he was really looking forward to running against JFK, and he actually looked forward to the 64 election prior to the assassination for the opportunity to have a gentlemanly campaign against JFK. But then when LBJ... Uh, was the president and, and the heir apparent, he just realized he had no chance and actually didn't, I don't, he didn't really even put himself out there until 63 and it had actually turned it down before, correct? There's a great, there's a draft Goldwater movement and it's, it's really the beginning of the, of the new right of the modern conservative movement. It starts with a big mass rally in New York City of all places where they jam Madison Square Garden. They sell 18,000 tickets and they've got people outside waiting to get in. Uh, and it's a bit of a, of a youth movement. It's, it's, it really is a true draft movement. And of course, after Kennedy's assassination, right after that, you take a look at what Johnson's approval rating is. It's 85 percent. Wow. So, so whether it's Goldwater or Rockefeller or Scranton, unless it's Dwight Eisenhower again, which is a constitutionally, uh, you know, forbidden. It's a suicide mission for, for any Republican candidate in 1964. And also the country is prosperous and except for, you know, kind of things going on in Vietnam with these advisors, it's really largely a peace. Well, but I, I kind of found it interesting that, though, I mean, there was definitely room, in my opinion, for there to be a hardline candidate like he was. 
um, you know, with with the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the way we had to stand up to the Soviets, um, I just found it interesting that he got to be so far off to the right that he scared so many people with his comments. He was very bold, shall we say? Yeah. You know, when he when when he 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 would almost go and talk to senior citizens and question, you know, whether we could make Social Security viable again. All of us paying our money and paying our dollars into Social Security, when we get to the age to get it back, we're not going to get our dollar back. The dollar today has reduced in value over 50% from what it was a mere 20 years ago. Yet we're going to see a greater decrease with more and more inflation. Now, I don't believe in inflation, but to invite inflation by the constant deficit spending that we're doing, this is what I'm trying to talk about in Social Security, that if this kind of wasteful expenditure continues in our government, that when it comes time for them to get their Social Security, they're not going to do too well. I remember when I first went to work, I read an ad in a magazine, retire on $125 a month, and they had a picture of a man and his wife sitting under a palm tree or an orange tree in Florida. So I bought one. It's all paid up. When I get to be 65, I can retire on 125 a month. Trouble is, I won't even buy an orange tree. When he attacks or questions the Tennessee Valley Authority, he's doing it in the Tennessee Valley. When he goes down to South Carolina, he attacks segregation. Okay? It's almost like he's going out of the way at every stop to make, give people reason not to vote for him. Uh, yeah, so I, think he, the, I he, think the line was, every time he opens his mouth, he's campaigning for Lyndon. Just about. And he's very anti-political in that sense. We put our reliance upon freedom, upon the free enterprise system. We reject, therefore, the ideas of the economic planners in Washington that a group of people sitting in Washington can plan what the country is going to make, where it's to be made, the quality of the product, the price of the product, the wages to be paid, the profit to be made, etc., etc. We know that this system, which in, in simpler terms is called socialism, has never worked in the history of the earth and is, is not working today in countries where it's been tried. So, so this line of modern Republicans always saying that they're anti-Washington. Can we take a direct line from, from Goldwater in that kind of respect? Well, Goldwater's not only anti-Washington, but remember one of his early comments is, I want to take the uh, eastern seaboard and saw it off. You know, that's, that's an a, a assault on eastern Republicanism. That shows up in the election returns big time. He does absolutely worse in, in the traditional home of the Republican Party, New England. Uh, they just crush him. And that is the first time in history, just about, all, all states in New England go Democratic. It's the first time Vermont goes Democratic since 1820. Vermont had gone Democratic in 1912, but that was a three-person race. That's the first time Vermont gives, or Maine gives a majority of its votes to the Democrats, and it is not by an eyelash. All those votes, all those states crush Barry Goldwater. All and right. it, it only gets marginally better in, in the rest of the Northeast. You're going to have to lead us, David, as to how we can get to this situation whereby this guy who the press are going to have a field day with 
and who historically is going to be so important for the Republican Party but has a crushing defeat in 1964. How he even wins the nomination. So let's go back to that story. Let, let's have the story of his race with Nelson Rockefeller and Henry Cabot Lodge etc and how this outsider character defeats the Republican establishment. Henry Cabot Lodge wins a couple more primaries uh, but Goldwater is taking the conventions. He takes a string of, of largely unexciting primaries. Uh, but what he, he has is this, this tremendous volunteer organization. It's a real grassroots sort of thing. It's a pre-Tea Party Tea Party. There are like 50,000 Goldwater volunteers. There's 20 or 30,000 in California alone. I'm very impressed with him. I'm extremely proud that we have an American with guts enough to uh, put America back where it belongs. I like his plan, and I like his, uh, his way of speaking, and I think he's going to keep his promises, his campaign promises. And uh, I know one thing, he won't be a yes man for any party. One of the phenomenons of the campaign is that it's a very, shall we say, literate campaign in that there are a lot of conservative bestsellers, starting with, I guess you would say, Goldwater's The Conscience of a Conservative, okay, which sells three and a half million copies. There's a, a book put out which is self-published by someone who is still alive today and active in the conservative movement, Phyllis Schlafly, housewife great Republican activist who publishes something called A Choice, Not an Echo. That sells three million copies. Another fellow from Missouri uh, named John Stormer sells, I don't know, maybe seven million copies. There's another little book, A Texan Looks at Linden, uh, by a very, very, very right-wing guy in Texas. Uh, again, millions of copies sold. People are, are reading and they're activists. But getting back to the primary, Nelson Rockefeller comes to life again in Oregon, captures that primary, and it looks like it's going to be a showdown at the OK Corral at the traditionally last big primary in California. Now, it is so crucial, it is so crucial, and this is, this is a very little known fact, you know, the relationship between, you know, we, we, we think of the icons of American conservatism. We think of Reagan and Goldwater and Buckley. And there's a meeting at National Review just before the California primary. And Buckley announces if Goldwater can't seal the deal, National Review will withdraw its endorsement if Goldwater loses California. So it's head-to-head -head Rockefeller versus Goldwater. You've got all those Goldwater volunteers, particularly in Southern California. And then three days before the primary, remember what I said about Nelson Rockefeller's divorce and remarriage. 
three days before the primary, a son is born to Nelson Rockefeller and his second wife, reminding everyone of that issue. And Barry Goldwater wins with just 51-52% uh, in California. And it, it it's basically uh, his nomination. Senator Barry Goldwater needs a thousand hands to receive congratulations after his victory in the California presidential primary. His victory there over New York's governor, Nelson Rockefeller, puts him close to winning the Republican nomination when the convention meets in San Francisco next month. However, Governor Rockefeller has promised a fight to the finish, and it has been pointed out that Goldwater still needs an additional 201 delegates to clinch the Republican nomination. While admitting that his rival has a chance to be nominated on the first ballot, Rockefeller says anything can happen. Meanwhile, the Arizona senator has expressed the hope that he may wrap up the nomination in state conventions coming up in Alabama, Colorado, Hawaii, and Washington. All has not been sweet victory for Goldwater. He snared only seven New York delegates when he expected 20, and he lost South Dakota. Now, most of the sound and fury will fade until the Republicans convene in San Francisco's Cow Palace. He's got well over the number of delegates needed on paper, but nonetheless, a new liberal moderate champion rides in to pick the torch up from the faltering, faltered, completely collapsed now, Nelson Rockefeller, and that's William Scranton. He rushes all around the country with a stop Goldwater movement, but the votes just aren't there. Republican man of the hour and a smiling Mrs. Barry Goldwater meet the people and the press as they walk the streets of San Francisco in the opening days of the Republican National Convention. At the hotel where much of the preliminary activity had centered, the platform committee gave the conservative senator a victory in writing a generally mild civil rights plank and in refusing to include a plank disapproving Mr. Goldwater's wish to entrust control of atomic weapons to the Pentagon. Challenger William Scranton is not a man to be deterred by such setbacks or by the overwhelming numbers of votes early reported pledged to Mr. Goldwater. Right to the last moment, the Pennsylvania governor keeps up his plucky fight. An enigmatic figure in San Francisco is former President Eisenhower, who arrives with Mrs. Eisenhower. He attends the convention as a commentator, not a participant, and he consistently adhered to his avowed policy of non-commitment to any man. Reminiscent in scope and orderliness of last year's peace march on Washington is the demonstration for civil rights. 50,000 people converge on the Civic Center to protest a Goldwater nomination and the civil rights plank. Former Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge is one of the active Scranton backers to be on the dais during the rally. Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who turned his campaign organization over to Governor Scranton, also attends. Republican National Convention reaches the spirited but hardly suspenseful climax of its San Francisco conclave to name a presidential nominee for 1964. The uh, great figure of the Republican Party at this time is Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower supposedly had been urging William Scranton to run all year. Uh, but when Scranton does decide to run, of course, very late in the game, you know, Eisenhower was a people are recognizing this now 
that Eisenhower was a lot cannier, a lot savvier politically than people gave him credit for back then. And he just he backs away from Scranton at the end of that process, refuses to get into the fray, refuses to join that losing battle. Uh, they also try to enlist the Senate Minority Leader Everett McKinley Dirksen to stop uh, the Goldwater juggernaut. Dirksen ends up placing Goldwater's name in nomination. Now Scranton goes to the convention and very graciously moves that Goldwater's nomination be made unanimous. So he he gets back on board. But a lot of the other people don't. There's a United States senator, a Republican from upstate New York named Kenneth B. Keating. He walks out of the convention. And he's not even the most liberal guy in the Republican Party. He takes a hike, so to speak. Uh, George Romney refuses to back Goldwater. And as a practical matter, whether Republicans elsewhere give lip service to the Goldwater candidacy is certainly in the Northeast, they run and hide. You can't find a Goldwater headquarters. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You can't find a piece of gold water material. They are they go directly to the dumpster. Senator Barry Goldwater's wife Peggy, their two sons and two daughters, watch Senate Minority Leader Everett Dirksen place Mr. Goldwater's name in nomination. For more than a half hour, the Goldwater backers, who were in preponderance in the vast cow palace, whoop it up for the Senate. Their 
overwhelming majority here is no accident, but is the result of months of meticulous groundwork by Goldwater campaign workers in the precincts of every state. Next in order of nomination is Governor Nelson Rockefeller. This demonstration is more a show of loyalty than anything else, for Mr. Rockefeller had previously thrown his support to William Scranton. An historic move is cheered by the backers of Senator Hiram Fong of Hawaii, the first man of Asiatic blood ever to be placed in nomination for the President of the United States. Also tradition-shattering is Senator Margaret Chase Smith, the first woman whose name has ever been presented to the delegates of a major political party as candidate for the presidency. Attention is now centered on the box where Governor Scranton's family is watching the final act of this political drama. His name is placed in nomination by Dr. Milton Eisenhower, brother of the former president. For the presidency of the United States, William Warren Scranton of Pennsylvania. The Scranton demonstration lasts about as long as did the one for Goldwater. Other names put before the convention were those of Michigan Governor Romney and former Minnesota Representative Judd. But the nearest thing to a contest was between Scranton and Goldwater. The senators' votes climb inexorably toward the 655 necessary for a Goldwater nomination. Although the result had been obvious for some days, the senators' supporters greet each gain with renewed jubilation. Governor Scranton comes to the speaker's stand to accept his defeat with grace and to ask a unanimous nomination for his rival for the sake of party unity. Such unity is imperative if the Republican Party is to match the generally cohesive Democratic Party in November, but it might not be easily attained. For Senator Goldwater's triumph takes the leadership of his party away from the Eastern Liberal Bloc and places it with the Western Conservatives for the first time since 1936. A remarkable achievement by a tireless campaign. By unthinking and stupid labels. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. That moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. So now we have our Republican nominee. Um, how is Johnson faring with um, the fact that he, there is this campaign from, from the Dixiecrats for, in, in the shape of George Wallace? How does he come into the summer? How is the Democratic Convention? How does that play out? There's going to be just a couple of issues at the Democratic National Convention, one of which involves the South and civil rights. The Democratic parties in all the various states 
are still pretty much lily white operations, particularly in Mississippi. But in Mississippi, a group has formed called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is essentially black voters, and they are going against the established lily white voters or voters and the organization. And they send competing slates to、um, the convention. Question is, who are you going to seat? Who are you going to seat? And there's a compromise. Uh, which is established that the Lily White organization is not going to go forward, so they split it and、um, between the two numerically. Neither side is particularly pleased with this, and there's a great moment with when Lyndon Johnson is placing the calls to the convention, and he's almost unhinged. Saying he's going to quit if they can't resolve this, it's it's very quite it's quite amazing that he's got you know almost everything in his grasp, but this this small issue、uh, causes him to to have a complete fit that he's going to leave the race if it's not settled. The other thing he has to settle is of course the vice presidency. There's no vice president at this point. They haven't、uh, filled that vacancy. They don't have the constitutional ability to do that yet. Uh, so there's, it's 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 all up in the air now. There's a bunch of people who want the vice presidency as always. The most prominent person being the person who probably hates Lyndon Johnson the most in the world, Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy is still in the cabinet as Attorney General to Lyndon Johnson, and、uh, Johnson wants no part of Bobby Kennedy on his ticket. He wants no part of Bobby Kennedy. Period, and Johnson's. Legal advisor, the future Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas, comes up with an idea, a brilliant excuse as to why Lyndon Johnson is not going to pick Bobby Kennedy for the job. He says it's not going to be any cabinet member. It's not going to be anyone who meets with the cabinet、uh, to any、uh, great extent. Bobby Kennedy will joke publicly. Uh, that he would like to apologize to all his fellow cabinet members for for dragging so many good people down with him,、uh, but he's not happy about that at all. 3:30 p.m. Atlantic City time, and the sudden departure of Senator Hubert Humphrey for Washington provides a key clue to the riddle that has been teasing the 5,000 delegates to the Democratic National Convention since it opened. Who is the vice presidential candidate that President Johnson has in mind? Contending with John Kennedy in important 1960 primaries brought him national stature, enhanced lately by his successful guiding of the civil rights bill through the Senate. As they were winging their unexpected way to the hitherto slow-paced convention, Mr. Johnson's name was being placed before the delegates as presidential candidate, and his wife and daughters now hear the roaring demonstrations that follow his nomination by acclamation. The president does not let his audience down. He pounds the gavel himself to end the demonstration. When there is comparative silence, he tells the delegates he hopes that they will choose as the next vice president of the United States. My close, my long time. My trusted colleague, Senator Hubert Humphrey.
Senator Humphrey, too, is nominated by acclamation. The convention reaches its climax as Mr. Johnson delivers his formal acceptance of the nomination. I ask the American people for a mandate not to preside over a finished program, not just to keep things going. I ask the American people for a mandate to begin. I truly believe that we someday will see an America that knows no north or south, no east or west, an America, an America that is undivided by creed or color and untorn by suspicion or strife. We do offer the people a choice a choice of continuing on the courageous and the compassionate course that has made this nation the strongest and the freest and the most prosperous and the most peaceful nation in the history of mankind. And at this point, I mean, they've got their nomination, but looking at it from the Republican side, LBJ was just thrilled that it was Goldwater running. I mean, he was certain of victory, and it became, I mean, he even knew about his Southern strategy to try to unhinge the, uh, the, the traditional Dixie states from the traditionally uh, Democratic voting bloc. And it, knowing all that, he knew he's going to win. He just wanted to win by a landslide at this point. Well, he wants to crush him. It's yeah. not just a question of, of beating Goldwater. It's of obliterating Goldwater. And he, he just about wants every vote. And he wants to crush uh, this new-born conservative movement. And when the votes are coming in election night, I think it's like John Chancellor said that, you know, conservatism is finished. It's over. And 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 when you look at those election returns, um, you know, that's an arguable case. past Monday night, a week ago, our house was fired in. Someone shot through the window several times, striking my granddaughter and uh, her cousin and myself. They were shot up badly, but I got uh, some of the pellets off the fan struck me in the arm. Well, I know that I'm a citizen of this country. I'm loyal to all the uh, obligations that they're calling out of a citizen. I pay or we pay our tax, and I just know, and I was reared, born and reared in Mississippi, and I'm a citizen of Mississippi. Okay, but let, let's go back. Let's actually try and decipher and uh, you know and, and kind of analyze what was happening during the actual election. Now, so we're at the end of the summer. We have the summer, the autumn, which is going to be, strictly speaking, you know, campaigning between the two um, nominees to be president of the United States. Um, 
what does the Republican establishment actually think now? So, because we have a very much an analogous position now as we enter into the uh, 2016 primaries, don't we? Where there is this kind of upset, seemingly outside Republican character, uh, character um, going up against the establishment. But the the establishment have lost in the shape of Nelson Rockefeller. So what does the Republican establishment do? Do they solely and squarely get behind Goldwater? What happens? Well, ev everyone's disheartened. I mean, a lot of the middle of the road Republicans are disheartened. Uh, Goldwater even gets on a plane and flies to New York to address it directly to try to appeal to the Rockefeller Republicans. And Rockefeller by this time is kind of back in the fold. But he's got some real issues as far as that's as far as that's concerned. And also, the press have kind of rounded on Goldwater as being a kook, haven't they? So, can you give us some examples of how the press kind of paint him? Well, oh, well. He, he didn't do himself any favors either. I mean, he you know his nomination speech, you know, the extre uh, extreme uh, extremism in the in the for in the defense of liberty is no vice. I mean, he got a lot of backlash from that. He wanted to pull out of the UN, break off relations with Russia, use low-yield low nuclear bombs in Vietnam. I mean, he really allowed himself to be betrayed by a coup. And, you know, David mentioned Ike. Ike really tried to help him out. You know, when, when he made that speech at the, at the nomination, he brought him in and said, what are you, what are you trying to say here? But you're going to alienate everybody. And, and uh, Barry Goldwater told him, you know, hey, when you invaded uh, Normandy, that was a, an extreme action in defense of liberty, and I kind of had to chuckle at that, but he was definitely trying to be coached by the, the standard bearers of the Republican Party. Yeah, they sit down. Uh, during the campaign, Goldwater sits down with Eisenhower, and they have a taped conversation at Gettysburg to try to reassure Republicans that, uh, you know, if, it's, uh, if this guy's okay with uh, Ike, then he's, he's okay, which is interesting as well because one of the ways that Barry Goldwater had made his reputation uh, in the 1950s, one was his uh, going against labor union corruption, but also he had regularly derided the Eisenhower administration as a dime store New Deal. Some of the more interesting uh, cases regarding uh, how the press reacted to Goldwater was uh, one that was a magazine called Fact, a very small magazine, and they rounded up somehow 1,400 or 16 psychologists, and the consensus basically was that Goldwater was nuts. He was unstable, etc., etc. Uh, also, the uh, Daniel Shore, a very respected CBS commentator, who, who after leaving CBS went on to be on for decades on national public radio, he produces a really uh, fanciful. Uh, account that Goldwater is going to visit Munich, Germany and confer with the members of the German no, neo-right and, and the inferences are basically that this half-Jewish nominee of the Republican Party uh, is going to team up with a bunch of neo-Nazis and it's really quite the smear job. Back in July in San Francisco the Republicans held a convention. Remember him? Governor Rockefeller. Before the convention, he said Barry Goldwater's positions can, and I quote, spell disaster for the party and for the country. Or 
Him? Governor Scranton. The day before the convention, he called Goldwaterism a, quote, crazy quilt collection of absurd and dangerous positions. Or this man, Governor Romney. In June, he said Goldwater's nomination would lead to the, quote, suicidal destruction of the Republican Party. So, even if you're a Republican with serious doubts about Barry Goldwater, you're in good company. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. The uh, Johnson campaign has a somewhat famous um, ad about the kind of kookiness and, and the fact that Goldwater would have his finger on the nuclear trigger. Can you tell us about that ad yeah. and the effect of that ad, David? Yeah, there's, there's basically three famous ads from uh, the Johnson camp, and they're, they're all pretty tough. One is, which was probably the most effective, although we, we, we only remember the Daisy ad, was uh, it concluded with a pair of hands tearing up a social security card. And that, that may have actually been the most effective one. There's another ad which ad airs more and it has a little girl in it. It's not the Daisy ad. It's the uh, ice cream cone ad where this little girl is eating an ice cream cone and they're talking about the resumption of nuclear tests. There's been a nuclear test ban between the United States and Russia negotiated by Jack Kennedy. And there's this ad and then there is the Daisy ad where this little girl is pulling the, the pedals off a daisy and the countdown comes. Six, eight, nine. Three, two, two one. one. The nuclear bomb. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. And who can you trust to keep the peace? And keeping the peace is one of the great attacks on Goldwater and the positives for Johnson, which of course is ironic because late in that campaign, something is going to happen off of Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin, where one of our Navy ships is either attacked or not attacked by the North Vietnamese. There's a resolution in Congress empowering Johnson to do whatever it takes against the North Vietnamese, and we're on the road to a real war in Vietnam. Bringing up the, the Daisy ad, Goldwater really did not want to get into, into the weeds the way that LBJ did, using the dirty tricks. And in fact, at one point, the, the Republican Party, uh, you know, the, the staffers in charge of the election, produced a kind of a racist flick called Choice, which was dwelling on the inequities of the big city. And Goldwater was just taken aback by it. And he said, I'm not going to run that kind of campaign. If you air this, I'm going to denounce it. So, you know, for being a kook, he really didn't want to get into the weeds that much. And, it, and Roy Field, you, I wanted to touch back on something you, you talked about earlier. You know, you're, you're making a comparison to, I'm assuming, Trump in, uh, in 2016. There was, when you talk to, when you look at the way that Goldwater talked, I mean, a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, in this day and age, haven't really had an opportunity to see his speeches or hear his manner of speaking. 
he was very candid and, and had a candor that really appealed to a lot of people. And and a lot of the the Democrats from the South who were interviewed after the election said that they went to the Republican side because of just his plain manner of speaking and, and his candor, which is very much in parallel with what we're seeing from Trump today. And, and I don't want to unfairly put Goldwater in the same you know camp as Trump, but it's very similar from that perspective. And I think that's where... He, he, he's not into cosmetics and there's a story where one of his young PR guys a guy named Lee Edwards goes up to him and says now you've got a very interesting story uh, senator you you served in the war you're interested in the the Navajo uh, you're you're a, a pilot he flew like over 170 different types of planes in his life and Goldwater says, if you ever push any of those things, you're fired. And then there's another story about how they tried to get a picture of him in, you know, one of these whistle stop tours in the compartment of, of the train. And he's just refuses to be pigeonholed into that sort of cosmetic uh, campaign. Dennison Kitchell, who is actually the guy who put the kibosh on that choice film his campaign manager. If you kiss a baby in New Hampshire, I quit. You know, these guys are just not into that manner of, of photo op campaigning at all. Dennison Kitchell is interesting in, in another couple of ways. One, he had been an early member of the John Birch Society. Now he gets out fairly quickly when the kookery becomes apparent with Robert Welch. But he is probably one of the reasons, and there, there are other reasons why Goldwater is very slow to condemn the membership of the John Birch Society. He will condemn Robert Welch and his charges against Eisenhower. And Dennison Kitchell wants to veto as well another campaign television program from that campaign, which is put on the air very late in the game, and of course, that's the famous A Time for Choosing, or The Speech, by this actor, Ronald Reagan. Just before we go on to the speech, give us a little bit of background about the John Birch Society. What exactly uh, was it, and uh, why was it so important to kind of formulating this new uh, kind of uh, vision of conservative politics in America? Well, in the 1950s, there's not a lot of conservative infrastructure, anti-communist infrastructure organizationally you know we, we don't yet invent all the think tanks and and packs and super packs and all that sort of thing and robert welch who was a candy manufacturer out of boston uh, summons a bunch of his businessmen friends together for a few days in indianapolis just sort of talking at them incessantly and says look we've got to organize and he does and it seems to many people to be a, a good idea, but then it comes out that his big idea is that Dwight Eisenhower is a conscious, active member of the communist conspiracy. And then he doubles down on that by making a similar uh, accusation against the Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. He's read out of the conservative movement by William F. Buckley and National Review um, but it's still, you know, it's the, the organization still exists to this day. It's pretty much inconsequential at this point. I'm not quite sure 
what the membership would be, but it's it's pretty far down there in asterisk territory. That was not the case in the early 60s. It was still controversial, and Goldwater was under constant pressure to pull away from that. So that when he gives that, now some people have ex- uh, interpreted the extremism quote speech at that convention to be talking about say the civil rights movement uh, or the anti-civil rights movement in the south remember what goes on in the south that summer that's one of those long hot summer things uh it's not so much the demonstrations that define that year but the murder of the three civil rights workers in mississippi uh uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, and and one of the one of the more disquieting facts about that uh, mur- series of murders is while they are looking for the bodies of those three murdered individuals, they're dredging the rivers and they find three more bodies. That's how bad it is and tough it is in Mississippi. But the extremism is not only his positions, but some people are saying, well, he's aligning himself with, with the Birch Society. Okay, so um, we're going to go back very slightly because um, the 1964 election is kind of famous for launching uh, the, the really the political career of one-time Democrat but future Republican President Ronald Reagan. Ladies and gentlemen, we take pride in presenting a thoughtful address by Ronald Reagan, Mr. Reagan. Thank you. Thank you and good evening. The sponsor has been identified, but unlike most television programs, the performer hasn't been provided with a script. As a matter of fact, I have been permitted to choose my own words and discuss my own ideas regarding the choice that we face in the next few weeks. I have spent most of my life as a Democrat. I recently have seen fit to follow another course. I believe that the issues confronting us cross party lines. Now, one side in this campaign has been telling us that the issues of this election are the maintenance of peace and prosperity. The line has been used, we've never had it so good. But I have an uncomfortable feeling that this prosperity isn't something on which we can base our hopes for the future. No nation in history has ever survived a tax burden that reached a third of its national income. Today, 37 cents out of every dollar earned in this country is the tax collector's share. And yet our government continues to spend $17 million a day more than the government takes in. We haven't balanced our budget 28 out of the last 34 years. We've raised our debt limit three times in the last 12 months. And now our national debt is one and a half times bigger than all the combined debts of all the nations of the world. We have $15 billion in gold in our treasury. We don't own an ounce. Foreign dollar claims are $27.3 billion. And we've just had announced that the dollar of 1939 will now purchase 45 cents. Give us um, a real sense of A, that speech, and then the the impact of that speech, and then what that does for immediately for Reagan's career. Reagan had been a very active Democrat in 1948. You can listen to it on uh, YouTube, where he's giving a radio address endorsing Hubert Humphrey for the Senate in Minnesota. And, and, it, and you can hear 
Reagan in that speech. It's like he, he basically writes his own stuff, and, the, and there's a certain cadence to it, which is very familiar, even though he's saying all the wrong things for Reagan, uh, as, as we know him. Now, he starts to drift to the right in that Eisenhower year, and of course, he had had problems, shall we say, with the hard left, when he was with the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and uh, he's he's battling the uh, communists in Hollywood, and even having to you know carry a pistol for his own protection, he had got the death threats. He goes to work for GE in the uh, 1950s, gives a lot of pro-business, free enterprise speeches all around the country to employees at the various GE plants, and he's for. He's basically a Democrat in name only up until 1960 or so. He endorses Nixon. He is very active for Goldwater. He's a Goldwater delegate at the convention. And they put together a little talk, about 28 minutes long, which they're not quite sure what to do with it. It's in California. It's not a softball speech. It's it's very hard line, but it is... Somehow, when Ronald Reagan says it, it is not as as frightening to the American people as when Barry Goldwater says it. It's essentially the same message, but Reagan is the great communicator. People around Goldwater, the Arizona mafia, don't necessarily, in fact, they don't want to run it at all, but but it is brought to the attention of Goldwater. He doesn't see the video, but he hears a tape recording of it, and at the end of it, he, he just says, well, what the hell's wrong with that? Put it on. <laughs> so it's a very closely run thing. It doesn't change many votes. The Goldwater campaign is too far gone for that. But all over the country, people watch that and they go, wow, wow. And without that speech, a bunch of California businessmen do not approach Ronald Reagan to run for the governorship of California in 1966, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I think another thing you kind of have to add on when you're talking about Reagan is one of the things that really defined Goldwater was his opinion that the Democrats had become too soft on communism. And really, there there was this feeling in the Republican Party, as far as the radicals were concerned, that you don't, you don't compromise with communism. And even though Reagan had been a Democrat, he used to do these coffee clatch record things where the housewives in the 50s would have these coffee clatches where they'd come over and listen to Ronald Reagan's denunciations of communism and the dangers of socialism, everything from nationalized health care to labor unions. So he was very much a Democrat in name only, but that's when Goldwater comes out is we don't compromise with socialism. We pull out of the UN. We lean on our nuclear arsenal. That really appealed to him. Oh, sure. And he's, he's already on board. The big star in the Goldwater Celebrity Stable is, however, uh, John Wayne. An umbrella, just that, or the symbol for appeasement. A table, just that, or a sellout abroad. A wall, just that, unless it helps you remember what has happened to a billion people in this world and what can happen to you and to your children. As for me, I choose a free America for myself and my children. An America free for all people, always. I look forward to the tomorrow in which high purpose, 
will be restored to our high offices. I look forward to a time and a republic under God in which the American dream is still attainable and still sought. Vote Goldwater Miller for a new beginning. And it's interesting that the mainstream media does not get the import of Reagan in 1964 as to how important that speech is. If you read The Making of the President in 1964 by Theodore White, Reagan is not mentioned in the entire book. If you take a look at the film made of that book, which was put on network TV, you see Reagan at a couple events. He's just sort of sitting in the audience and they don't mention him at all. They don't mention the speech. Of course, also, I, I talk about the problem with Theodore White's books. They're not history. They're extended journalism. So he can't quite see what's coming up next or what the importance of things are during a campaign. And we're not going to know what the importance of things in the 2016 campaign is for quite some time either. But you take a look at that film of the making of the president in 1964 and nowhere in it is Vietnam mentioned except that that's where Henry Cabot Lodge is hanging out. Nothing about the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, David, would, would you say it's safe to say that LBJ kind of had, which is ironic considering the way things turned out, He going into the 64 election, he had kind of a, a, a peace image? Yes. I mean, that that's the, the question that you're going to not get into a nuclear confrontation with Russia. You're not going to lob a bomb into the men's room of the Kremlin like uh, Goldwater had joked. There were questions about not only using uh, nuclear weapons as a defoliant in Vietnam, uh, but Goldwater had talked about the use of tactical nuclear weapons and having field commanders authorized to use them in Europe in case of a Soviet invasion, which actually was already standing NATO policy, but it gets turned into like Goldwater and nuclear weapons. So all of these things, you know, not to mention these nuclear test ban treaties and and such were very much playing into Lyndon Johnson's hands that that he would be the force for stability in the world and actually if you take a look at one of Goldwater's speeches during early on I think in New Hampshire where he's talking about building up the American economy so hard and build, putting the economic pressures on the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc so much that that, he doesn't use the word evil empire, but that that evil empire will collapse and we will have victory over communism. And when you listen to it in the context of the, the Reagan policy, it's like, whoa, he's articulating the Reagan policy, which broke the back of the whole Gorbachev operation. Okay, it's election day. townsfolk are on hand when the polls open waiting for Mr. Johnson and he arrives eight minutes later to cast his vote. Accompanied by the first lady, the president seems confident of becoming the first southerner ever to be elected to this highest office. The way he voted would hardly be a top-level secret, but it probably helped swing his home state of Texas into the victory column. Now it's back to the ranch to await the returns. Meanwhile, the other candidate casts his ballot in his hometown, Phoenix, Arizona. 
Senator Goldwater was up at 5 in the morning chatting with other amateurs on his ham radio, and then he has a wait of more than an hour in line before he votes. We have Barry Goldwater uh, and the Republican establishment known he's going to lose. We have Lyndon Baines Johnson about to be confirmed uh, as president. Take us through that day and then the immediate aftermath of the election, please, David. The polls open at midnight in Dixville Notch, New Hampshire, and Goldwater surges to an eight to one lead. That's not gonna hold. (laughs) By a long shot, it's it's horrible all the way through. Uh, Goldwater even, (laughs) Goldwater even gets stuck in line at the Phoenix polling place for an hour and a half before he can vote. I mean, it's the glory of American democracy that, like, you know, even big shots have to wait in line election day. But that'll tell you how how badly things are going for Goldwater. There is a huge sweep of Democrats in the House of Representatives, which is going to help propel that whole Great Society program of Lyndon Johnson in 1965 and it's going to sweep Republicans out in the North, which is going to shift the balance of power between the Democratic Conference and the House of Representatives. I think it's like a gain of 60 seats, really quite remarkable. Democrats only gain two seats in the Senate, not a big gain. I mean, it's hard to characterize that as a bloodbath but there's a reason for that. It's because six years previously, there had been a massive Republican bloodbath. So the, the Republican seats in play that year are very tiny. Republicans actually gain a governorship, but by and large, it is not a happy time for the Republican Party. Lyndon Johnson is going to get 61% of popular vote which is the biggest in history up until that point. He's going to take all states in the Union, save six, five of which in the Deep South, plus Barry Goldwater's home state of Arizona. But even in Arizona, Goldwater carries it by less than 52%. So it's bad news for the GOP, for Goldwater, and it looks like things are going to revert to normal in the Republican Party, that conservatism had its shot, it was tried and failed. And actually, what happens after Goldwater, I think, is that the conservative movement revolution might have been delayed for a while by Goldwater. I mean, certainly, it's been said, oh, they had a a gathering in, in 2014 to commemorate Goldwater's nomination. And one of the speakers said, you know, it was really a massive thing for us. We lost, but yet we won. Look, I don't see any gatherings to celebrate the nomination of Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that's true. And then he said, and I haven't seen him mentioned at any Democratic national conventions lately either, which is like, hmm. But in fact, the, the Republican Party kind of springs back to what it was before 1964. It takes the safe and sound and sane route by nominating Richard Nixon in 1968. It has a chance to vote for Ronald Reagan that year. He's been elected governor of Massachusetts. 
California in 1966. He doesn't get very far, in part because he's stopped by a couple because a couple guys do not support him. Strom Thurmond, who becomes a Republican in 1964, shifts the Southern votes for Richard Nixon, and Barry Goldwater doesn't back him either. So that the conservative, as George Will has famously said, Barry Goldwater won the election in 1964. It just took 16 years to count the votes. Meaning when Reagan <laughs> when Reagan comes in in 1980. Yeah, I mean he's almost been lionized, you know, in, in, the, in the conservative movement. I mean fairly in some cases, but I think you know over idealistically in others. I mean they they had a 50 year anniversary event of the of the Goldwater campaign and. And there's just this absolute lionization of him, just his plain way of talking and his his no nonsense. I mean, they're, they're even in some ways celebrating the McCarthyism angle of the conservative movement that kicked in with the the forty uh, eight election. Um, so I 40, mean, forty six. Oh, forty six. Yeah, sorry. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's he's there. There are very few iconic figures on the right. Or even, you know, on the left, on the left, we talk about, we'll talk about this election as being a realigning election, and it's a realigning election on the right, but it's it's only one side of the coin because there's a realigning election on the left, and that comes only eight years after 1964. It comes in 1972 when the McGovern. Wing of the of the Democratic Party takes over. Really, uh, hasn't given up any ground since. Probably consolidated it. But George McGovern, even though you know, you talk about the most con- you talk about Goldwater as the most consequential loser of the 20th century, and I think that's right. I think that's right. You might put McGovern into that category as well, and yet McGovern is not an iconic figure on the left. Sixty-eight million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes thirty-sixth president of the United States. The man who is thrust into office through the hand of tragedy captures an overwhelming percentage of the popular vote—more than sixty-one percent—a plurality over Barry Morris Goldwater of nearly sixteen million ballots. It is an historical, sweeping victory, approached only by that of Franklin Roosevelt in 1936. It is an election that crosses party lines, sees five states in the solid South defect to the GOP, and has political scientists wondering. Later, with the results in, Mr. Goldwater pledged himself to assist the newly elected president in every way he could. For the first time since 1800, the Capitol looks down on voters going to the booths in Washington. They turn out in droves to cast their first presidential ballots in 164 years. President Johnson takes the three District of Columbia electoral votes to add to his victories in 44 of the 50 states. Those three votes bring his total in the electoral college to 486 to Senator Goldwater's 52. Only 270 are needed to elect. As the voters made history in Washington, it was but one chapter of many in this historical election that has made its impact felt around the world. It was the ultimate picture of a great democracy at work, 
a people choosing the man who would guide their destinies in a troubled world for the next four critical years. Mr. Johnson, in winning the mantle of the presidency in his own right, has asked the help of all, the help of those who voted for him, the help of the 26 million people who cast their lot with Senator Goldwater. In victory, he seems subdued by the terrible burdens he must assume during the coming years. The United States is a nation that can be divided in the heat of an election and united again quickly when differences are resolved. A mandate has been given. Now may the people of the United States move forward behind their president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. That was 1964. Thank you for listening. We really need you to go onto iTunes and to write us a review for 10 American presidents and for this sub-series 10 American elections. That's very important because it helps get us extra listeners to the show and pushes up pushes us up those iTunes charts. You can follow us on Twitter where we are 10USAP. You you can go onto our website where we are 10USP. You can also follow me on social media where I'm at Royfield, which is spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Adam, if people want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? You can find me on Facebook. My last name is spelled Vanami, V-O-N-N-A-H-M-E. I also just created a Twitter account in your honor. Royfield, it's uh, at Adam Vanami, A-D-A-M-V-O-N-N-A-H-M-E. And David, are you working on any books at the moment? I have a book out called 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, Two Tales of Politics, Betrayal, and Unlikely Destiny. And we have another proposal in the works and under review by the industry. So we shan't say what that is. We shan't count that chicken before it hatches. Uh, Later in the year, May 23rd in Dallas at the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, which is the school book depository. We're talking about the 1960 election. And later on in June, June 18th, at the Roosevelt Reading Reading Festival in Hyde Park, talking about that 1932 book about Franklin Roosevelt. That's always a great venue. And at the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum, July 20th and 21st, I'll be sort of keynoting that uh, they're going to be dealing with all sorts of presidential uh, elections. Uh, but since I did the book on 1948, I get to be lead dog on that one, which is quite an honor. But if somebody wants to follow your progress on social media, how can they do that? On Twitter, D-P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. And uh, I have a website, davidpetrusha.com. Brilliant. Also, we are on Facebook where it's quite simply just go onto Facebook and type in 10 American presidents and you'll see a somewhat vibrant group. Uh 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply of people who are all interested in American history and politics. This has been the first episode of 10 American Elections. Uh, You'll see us again soon next month with another pivotal American election.